0: Welcome to the Fellowship of Christlike Growers podcast. We believe that agriculture is stronger when we help and support each other through the challenges and decisions we face as farmers. Our farmer sharing calls provide an opportunity to share and learn from each other's knowledge and experiences regarding the agronomy issues that matter most to our farms. Thank you, everybody, for uh, taking the time tonight again to get on board on the uh, farmer sharing call. And uh, I see that Joshua Mansky jumped on, and we've got Jake Hendricks uh, from up in Minnesota. Uh, And of course, I've got uh, Andrew and Craig on tonight, uh, along with uh, Dan. And uh, Steve and I met, uh, like he said earlier, about 13 years ago. in Minnesota and I met him through Nate Furley which has now of course become uh Agri-Vival and um uh, so you know, Nate working with Bex Hybrids now. But at that point in time when I met Steve, Nate was uh working for Legend Seed Company out of South Dakota and Steve was uh his sales manager, uh his mentor and uh Nate was the first intern that uh legend had had and so uh, it was an interesting uh, start for me and it was very beneficial and very rewarding to have someone like Steve who was willing to take a chance and try the products based on what Nate was seeing and uh, we had already had the products up there in Minnesota for a couple years and uh, he was willing to go out on the limb with us and uh, he's been with us ever since and so I'm very honored to have Steve uh, accept the invitation tonight to be able to talk with us about cover crops and regenerative ag and uh, different types of tillage and uh, biologicals, biostimulants, and uh, the things that he's done. Uh, again, as we said on each call, we want you to tell us what you would like to hear about. Uh, we've got a couple future calls that we are gonna line up. Uh, oh, we've got someone who's volunteered to who knows a lot about crop insurance, who's willing to do that on a meeting. And I've also solicited uh, Jeremy Swanson there in Iowa to do a talk about all the forms of nitrogen on some future call. Uh, He has a lot of experience from his years at uh, New Co-op there in Iowa and uh, also with Agronomy Rx there with uh, Larry in uh, Webster City, Iowa. So, But with all that, uh, Steve, we'll open it up. Uh, The floor is yours, and I really appreciate you taking the time to do this.
1: Okay, well, I'm gonna just just give you a real brief background. Uh, Like I said, I'm glad George didn't introduce me as an expert because I'm far from an expert, but I'm a curious person. Uh, I spent 35 years in the seed business um, with several companies, majors, regionals, and everything like that. When I was on my 50th birthday, uh, my mother died and all kinds of people were calling wanting to rent the farmland. They didn't know I'd been managing it already for a long time. And a guy who had been working for me, who I really thought the world of, Colin said, uh, I wanna talk to you about your land. And I thought, oh crap, he wants to rent it. <laughs> and uh, as it turned out, he said, no, do you wanna rent my equipment to farm your land? And so I started farming on my 50th birthday. I farm about 440 acres. But since I rent the bulk of my equipment from my younger farming partner, who's a who's a very large farmer, it's enabled me to do some things differently, um, because I'm not married to horsepower, and I'm not married to the smell of diesel fuel, and uh, also because it's not my primary living. And so I could do a lot of experimenting. When George came along uh, thirteen years ago, talking about, energy derived from a carbon source, I was skeptical. But after seeing some results for a couple years, I started to introduce the the CarbonWorks products into my farming operation. And uh, what I really want to emphasize, and this isn't a commercial for, for George or a commercial for anything, but what I found out a long time ago, it's all about a system. And so when George asked me to talk about my experiences, I want to emphasize what I do has become a system, and I can't say, oh, carbon works does this or RSTC seventeen does this or cover crops do this or reduced tillage do this because honestly, I don't know i'm i'm I'm, I'm farming um, not as a experimental Entity. I'm farming, trying to make money and trying to farm in a way that honors uh, the legacy that I have. I'm, I'm farming a century farm, uh, didn't get the opportunity to farm right out of college for some reasons. And now that I'm back there, I kind of want to put the land back into a, a situation. So just give you a brief overview of my operation. Um, as I mentioned before to Dan, we're in the far Southwest part of Minnesota, 30 miles north of the Iowa border, 40 miles east of the South Dakota border. Uh, We're farming on what's called the Buffalo Ridge, which is about 1300 feet above sea level, which is, you know, almost foothills. Um, We're we're part of the Mississippi-Missouri divide. Um, So for us, the challenge traditionally has always been Oh, we have to do full tillage because we have to have black soil in the spring. Otherwise, we don't warm up. When I first started using RSTC seventeen from George, it's because he convinced me I could introduce energy into my cropping system by applying carbon in the in the in the furrow, and that's how we we first got started. Um, right, George? <laughs> Just. That's correct. Yes, sir. Putting putting RSDC out there as an energy source, putting it down with the planter, um, doing both corn and soybeans. And we started seeing some immediate responses because we were getting the plants out of the ground an average of two to three days earlier and in a more uniform stand than we had been previously. The the planter I use runs across about 3,600 acres every year. So we have some good comparisons um, between my system and other systems, not directly on my farm. And what I was seeing was as the smallest member of the trio who share equipment, the smallest acres wise, we were pretty traditionally getting to my place last with corn. So another, you know, 1,800 acres were planted before we got to my place. We would change right to beans in the field. Mine would be the first of another 1,800 acres of beans planted. <laughs> what I was finding out was my corn was up two to three days earlier than the guys I was farming with, even though it was planted two days later. My beans were out of the ground, obviously way ahead of theirs, uh, because I was planting earlier but also they, ju- they just kept going. And so that was my first uh, real aha moment about introducing energy into my planning system was more uniform stands, faster growing stands, uh, better root establishment and, and better seedling vigor. So that was my first Well, based Well, based on that success, I started to think about how can we feed our plants throughout the season? Um, when I took over the farm, I hate to admit it had been mined down pretty, pretty harshly. Uh, the renter that I had, um, I didn't keep a close enough eye on him. He was shorting on fertilizer. He was hauling off a lot of the stover uh, back to his feedlot for bedding and wasn't hauling the manure back to us and some other things. So my organic matters got dropped pretty low. So, I started to get fairly serious about building organic matter uh, as another nitrogen source. The mineralization of organic matter in the midsummer was going to be one more shot of nitrogen for me. Um, and that just absolutely for me was the eye opener. I mean, uh, I can ask all of you if you're interested in cover crops the first, or have customers interested in cover crops, the first thing I would really encourage you to do is to say, why? Why do I wanna do cover crops? Um, And if you can't answer that in a logical manner, you're not ready to start using them yet. For me, like I said, it was a process. I got started with reduced tillage. My operation right now is I hit everything once in the fall very lightly with a vertical till machine, um, running about an inch and a half deep is all. I do that to size my residue and to pin it. Um, We have problems with a lot of of wind um, blowing corn stalks around. Uh, That's one of the reasons why people still in lots of cases do disc ripping and things like that, is to bury their residue to pin it well george kind of helped me find out that burying residue to pin it is like throwing gasoline on a fire it all goes up real fast and so i started doing the vertical tillage um uh, and again this is maybe longer than i need to go but started doing the vertical tillage um just to pin residue so that i wasn't plowing it under and, and getting you know all all the uh all the decomposition going too fast, so something would be left for the next year's crop. Um, That evolved into not touching it again in the spring, just planting right my corn, right into my soybean, lightly worked stubble, my uh, beans into the lightly worked corn stubble, which
2: was again an eye-opener. The reason why I started using cover crops at all
1: was that, uh, due to our due to our location and being right along the Buffalo Ridge, and you know that might be a something none of you are too familiar with, but the Buffalo Ridge is a very huge weather-changing uh, geological feature, and I don't believe in climate change necessarily. Well, what has changed for us is, is if we get 18 inches of rain through a growing season, it comes to 10, it tends to come in like uh, two, five inch showers and an eight-inch shower. The reason why I got started using deep rooted cover crops was to open up my ground so I could get better water infiltration. And how I got started with that was, is I just planted my drowned out areas with radishes and turnips and retch and things like that. Because every year it seemed like we we're having drowned out areas. What I found through the years was, even though we we're having the same rainfall events, my potholes were getting smaller. Because my infiltration was that much better. Uh, my side hill erosion got down to almost zero. Um, and interestingly enough for me, my compaction started to cure itself. a guy that I farm with is, is a very curious person. He has a, he has a big CRP seeding business. He has a lot of equipment. And when I said I was going to go all strictly very light, uh, vertical tillage in the fall, he said, well, at least you're going to want to disc rip. Um, your, end, your, your end rows to address the compaction you have with the grain cart and stuff. I said, no, I don't think so. I think I just want to leave them. I just want to treat them like the rest of the field. Uh, this past year, we went back and looked at 10 years of yield data and by not touching my end rows with any t- tillage ex- Except what I do on the rest of the field, the yields of my end rows have come to almost match the yield of the rest of the fields. Ten years ago, we were giving up 30% due to compaction. They're coming back up. In college, I had a professor, and I'll admit this was a long time ago. But I had a professor way back then that said, you can't cure compaction from the top down, you have to cure it from the bottom up. So when I talk about using cover crops, and I said right away, the first question you have to ask yourself or ask your customer is why do you wanna do it? And if one of the reasons is, is to cure some compaction and some things like that, then I say it's definitely worth the journey. If they say they want to do it to get an equip grant or because it's the trendy thing or anything else, I would say I think you should rethink this because cover crops, especially in the north, are a huge, huge pain in the butt. We don't have the growing season up here to seed them after harvest. So we have guys who are flying them into standing crop. We have guys who are going in with with uh, high clearance Hagee type machines we have people who are planting ultra early crops so they can get them off to come in with with cover crops and like I say they're all they're all a challenge and that's what i want to talk about tonight is my experience with cover crops and some of the questions you may have and that what i just told you before is just just so you know i'm not a I'm not a cover crop advocate. I'm not a, uh, not a disciple for, for George Sims. I'm not a no-till guru. I'm just a guy who has fortunately had the opportunity to try a bunch of things and try to figure out what, what works and also to advise people on what things they should try. So with that, George, I'd just like to open it up for conversation. I've talked enough. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's great, Steve. No, thank you, and uh, okay, I see Andy's on board. We've got Joshua Mansky. Uh, I know we've got Jake. Uh, we've got some guys here who are very much young people who are into this, Steve, into regenerative ag, and uh, they definitely are the guys that are gonna chart the future, and so uh, please, guys, uh, chime in. Uh, let's start uh, asking Steve some questions.
3: Steve, um, are you using a single species, multi-species? What are you doing in front of soybeans?
1: What are you doing in front of corn? What I'm, what I'm doing, uh, I don't, I don't have one, one cure-all. Okay, um, ahead of corn, I've done, uh, if I have the time, I've done some crimson clover and some rye. Um, you know, ahead of soybeans, I've done, I've done some grain rye up here the the real challenge is getting anything planted early enough in the fall to get enough fall growth if i had livestock that would be a whole different story i'm firmly convinced that with with livestock in a cover crop mix you can make a lot of things work because you're getting another revenue stream from the acre beside just you know the the grain crop Uh, i believe in in (laughs) It's, it's all got to be a prescription to what you're up to. And I encourage people for your first four way try, just straight up oats. Or uh, one of the best things I've told people is when we've had some of these heavy rain events, um, go in and wait till the first of August and go in and plant your drowned outs with radishes, turnips, kale, rape, uh, a mixture like that to get the ground opened up. Um, one of the things I find out when people use brassicas um, either they plant them too late or too early. If you plant them too early, uh, they have the tendency, they want to go to seed, they want to bolt, and you don't get the big tuber production. Um, if you plant them late, you just run out of season. So... Um, in using any of the brassicas, we've found up here in the north about August 1st just works great. Well, how do you plant anything on August 1st? Well, it has to be after a canning crop or it has to be uh, in an area that's drowned out or it has to be in an area that you've possibly planted to winter wheat or a winter rye and harvested it and come back in with the, with the brassicas. Uh, I would really say to people, radishes and turnips, if you're not willing to, if you're not able to plan between about the the 20th of July to about the 1st of September, um, you're not going to be happy with them. Sorry, long answer again. I'm not used to this, George. (laughs) Hey, you're doing great, Steve. Thank you.
2: Um. Uh, of, of the people on, are you, how many of you have experience with, with using cover crops in your own operation? We're just trying to, for the first time,
4: 22 acres, is
2: all.
4: Okay. Steve, I'm north of you, um, North Central Minnesota. And uh, we've been doing it for several years and we just do about four or 500 acres.
1: Right. How what are you doing it after harvest, Jake? Or when are you doing it?
4: Yeah, no, that's the beautiful part. So we got a lot of okay. barley and um, peas and edible beans. So they do tend to come off early enough to get them in.
1: Wonderful. Yeah. Are you doing it with, with in conjunction with livestock, Jake? Yes, correct. I don't I don't have that opportunity um because of where my farm is located and some other things i don't i don't have the opportunity to, to do livestock with it uh i had gone in a, in a um grazer forum a couple of years ago and i had a young person that was going to be willing to come in and and uh graze my cover crops into the fall and then into the spring and it it just didn't it didn't work out by the time we looked at the cross fencing and some other stuff it just didn't work out for him i'm of an age where i don't want the livestock myself so Jake i I, I want to just turn it around a little bit how are you, are you grazing well into the winter
4: yes uh, we generally will honestly bring them through winter um and we kind of tend to let them almost starve so they'll dig down through the snow and get as much as they can but eventually we will bring bales out and roll them out for them okay and I shouldn't say starve they they they're good looking critters and fleshy you and know, all but uh you know otherwise uh, if we start putting bales out they get lazy
1: right and are you doing that with uh kind of with no till on the on the rest of the crop or
4: um i no i'm a, i'm with you i'm a minimal till um i i have not perfected no till yet
1: <laughs> i think it's it's interesting um people get hung up in terms and uh it's really interesting (laughs) I have a son-in-law who works for Land O'Lakes and he encouraged me to look at the carbon market and I was very skeptical because I said I'm not a classic no-tiller well he encouraged me to enroll and I enrolled last year in the uh in the True Terra program um they considered what I was doing to be enough no-till that they were willing to come out and soil sample for my captured carbon and I've received carbon credits on all my acres from TruTerra. Even though I'm not a classic no-tiller, I try to do cover crops as much as I can. I'll be perfectly honest, not every acre gets cover crops every year, but with the reduced tillage and the Carbon Works products, quite honestly, the RST17 and trying to um, use carbon as my energy source, it's been good enough that the, Carbon market people consider me um, compliant, and I've got a pretty nice payment from them on all my acres. Hey, Steve, yes. can, you,
5: can you... Yep, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask you, Steve, because we've looked at... I've looked at at least half a dozen. This is Josh, by the way. i looked at half a dozen yep. carbon companies and have been very... Hesitant, to say the least, to enroll our farms into them yes. on the on the fear of getting into a contract that handicaps us, or or something else comes along that you know it pays better, yeah, and now exactly. we're locked in. Exactly. Can you, can you speak? Can you speak to, to because. The person like yourself that's enrolled, because I've, I've heard good things about True Terra, so that, that helps. But can you speak to just kind of how it works and, and why we should potentially do that?
1: One of the things, and again, I probably wouldn't have been interested if my son in law wasn't with Land Lakes and wasn't encouraged me to at least take a look at it so he could ground truth it. Um, one of the things with the True Terra pro- program is what they paid me for is what I have done in the last five years. Most of the carbon programs penalize the long-term no-tillers because for, if we started doing this 10 years ago, you're kind of almost uh, eliminate yourself from the program. True therapies pays for, for efforts you've done in the last five years, and then they pay for the carbon you have sequestered by their build, by their models of what you have sequestered in the last five years. Yeah, they ask you to maintain your practices For another 10 but the interesting thing is you can go and sell carbon credits on that same acre to somebody else for your ongoing activities Um, which i felt was really really pretty unique that they were paying for what had already been done and not for necessarily for what was going forward Um, i'm not interested in sequestering carbon to get a payment I'm interested in sequestering carbon because it's the way I think I can grow crops better. Um, that's one of the reasons why I use RSTC 17. I use it as an energy source by introducing carbon in and getting my plants off to a quicker start. It seems like uh, I'm I'm better utilizing um, what's in the ground. Uh, this year I went to a very unique nitrogen program. I put I put a little bit of 28% down with the planter. Very little, along with my RSTC-17. Came back and used 28% on my uh, early pre-emerge. And then came back at spike and applied another 12 gallons of 28% with a stream bar, like you would do for wheat. Uh, I applied it right over the row, and that was my nitrogen program. We uh, we were kind of late getting planted this year. I didn't get my corn planted until the 23rd of May, and then we got very dry. And with only that as supplemental nitrogen, I have shown no nitrogen deficiency through a very dry summer. And I think the reason why is because of the mineralization of my organic matter, and that's what that's what's carried me through the summer. And I really think that's that's something that. we have to think about is is how are we going to feed these crops ongoing through the summer. And uh, yeah, it it's 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 amazed me. It's amazed me how the program of very reduced tillage, uh, introducing cover crops, uh, and building organic matter and using you know RSTC 17 has enabled me to cut my fertility rates back. Steve,
5: question, got a question for you. I don't have
1: I don't have the number right here before me, but my yields per pound of nitrogen is is way below a lot of people. Go ahead. I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, you're fine. It was
2: run. It was running run east and west. Somebody
5: combine east and west. Oh, yeah. we have somebody. Maybe that's not it. A... Steve, can you? I, I got cut out there uh, just for a little bit. Had you? mentioned you would mentioned your you know your seed and cover crops it, do you find that uh you know flying it on with an airplane or uh putting it on with a haggy? I guess it depends on the type of mix you're using but is that I mean for those of us that want to do this especially with some of the farms we have in northern Iowa southern Minnesota too there's really no other option
1: right there that's the problem there's no other option and um a few years ago I were on 22 inch rows, and a few years ago, I converted a no-till drill, no-till CRP drill that I was part of the order of, to 22 inch rows, and I went and tried to put uh, two rows of cover crop between every row of corn, you know, in the in the gap, at about oh yeah, you could say about V5, about as late as I could get through with the with the uh, with the drill. It was an absolute failure <laughs> for two reasons. Number one is, is I still had a little bit of residual on my herbicide. Mm-hmm. And number two, you can't intercede in 22 inch rows. You, you establish your canopy way too early on 22 inch corn rows. So that's where I learned the lesson. Oh, this doesn't work. I've either got to get the corn crop off early and then come in and no-till drill, cover crops, or I have to find an option to get them on into standing corn um, We've done a little bit with a with a with a high clearance uh, sprayer that we converted to having um a single coulter come down and dropping some seed in that looks pretty promising it 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 does but again it's it's a slow it's a slow operation um in the north, I mean, for all of you guys are listening, I don't know how many are in the north. North is, is the problem; is we run out of season. You right. know, that's just the real problem. But also, we have to approach it from a different thing. We're not going to be able to have a living plant on the acre 365 days out of the year because frost is going to stop the living for us. So what I've done is is is, is I've tried to realize. Let's keep the cost low enough so that if I do get winter kill, I'm okay with that. And I can just go a no-till into the residue, and I don't have to worry about killing rye and killing things like that. Um, that's also, you know, that's not a bad solution to be able to stop your e- wind erosion and stuff through the winter by having something that was living out on that acre. Uh, isn't a bad solution. So if you're doing it low cost with oats or some things like that, that's something you could consider. Um, I think anybody that's done it will say the same thing. Start small. You know, maybe maybe start with with um, seeding in 40 acres of oats after after soybeans or something like that and just see, you know, how it goes. Steve
5: does the... The mix, I, I know you ate that had been maybe you know, talked about earlier. That has always been something that's interested me, and especially having it be in a winter kill mix, so we're not having to go in and kill you know, rye in the springtime. I'm you know, I mean, you think of a, a mix trying to have multiple yeah. functions, right? We're oats are right. you know, they're holding yeah. the soil, feeding the microbes, and you know, if you had winter peas, potentially... Yep. sucking some nitrogen or turnips help with compaction. I mean, is that, am I on the right spot? You're on, you're there on, exactly,
1: you you're on there ex- exactly the right track that you want to, you want to be able to have the soil in the spring. Um, in a, in a situation where you can uh, automatically take advantage of it with your primary crop. And for most of us, the primary crop is corn and soybeans, you know, um, as, and again, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not a believer in necessarily global warming, but I know that things are changing. And we're starting to see winter wheat come uh, this far north with some pretty good success. Um, I would consider putting some winter wheat into my crop rotation in place of a cover crop. Because again, I'm going to have something living on that acre well into when the frost puts it into dormancy, and then it will be coming back out of that dormancy in the spring, and I'll have something living on that acre. And then when I take the winter wheat off, then maybe I can look at coming back in with a with a, a turnip or a radish or a multi-species blend. Um, you know, I, I I think that that's got some definitely some potential for us up up here in the north i know you guys down in indiana you've been doing that regularly you know you've got you've got weed in the mix and things like that up here it hasn't been an option for us it's been spring weed or not or nothing and uh, so we're looking at that too uh, i haven't quite pulled the trigger on it yet to be perfectly honest
6: um, you know, it's, it's interesting, Steve, that you say that. Uh, Dan Coffin here from Indiana. We, we've had people trying it for years and they've not been successful. And part of the reason is because what you've been going through, they, um, they don't realize that, that the wheat actually, if it's given enough time in the fall, more than likely sets its head. To yeah. set the head size, you need energy. What I'm uh, listening to and being excited about what you're doing is exactly that. You're providing the energy in a time for the crop when it's growing during the season that it needs it, which is very, very early in its life. And then, of course, on up through the through the uh, season. But you're also providing energy for the crop and simultaneously the biology because the biology is having just as difficult a time with your soils as as the crop is you know i'm i'm assuming you know you're pretty decent organic matter and a lot of people check organic matter but they don't understand the difference between the qualities of organic matter so our wheat crops have suffered here just as badly as they have for you up there because of the lack of available energy once people start putting the energy into the wheat crop they're amazed that it's a different story altogether
1: and and i think the other thing is is that you know you talk about the about the biology and the the microflora and the microfauna and um <clears throat> i'm firmly convinced that all you do with tillage is you kill the microflora and microfauna and also i haven't used any anhydrous ammonia for uh 9 years because we used to use anhydrous ammonia to kill rats underneath our bunk side feeders. Um, and I started thinking, okay, how do we do that? Well, we did it by by absorbing all the moisture from their bodies. Well, we've, we're trying to build microflora and microfauna and insect life and everything below the surface. Now we pull anhydrous knives through there and we desiccate the ground and we kill all that microflora and microfauna. That's why I said before it's 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 got to be a system. Dan, you're exactly right. It's got to be a system. We need to build the the micro life below our soils. Uh, when I first met George 13 years ago, I don't know if he remembers this, but he he talked about you know that this was prairie up here, and as I said, well, for thousands of years it was sustaining prairie. It didn't need a plow to keep it alive because it had the things underneath the soil that would decompose the organic matter and use it as an energy source for the new for the new growth. Well, then we came in with the plow and we decided we could do better than that. And so we've just gradually been eliminating energy from our soils uh, with tillage and with monocrop and some other things. I think that's again without sounding like an old hippie. That's the advantage to a whole system is, is you're introducing energy when we need it. You're introducing uh, a different biology when we need it. And it gives us just the opportunity to do some some pretty creative things. Anybody in the group use winter wheat at all? Just curious, beside Dan down in Indiana. Okay.
6: There are several guys uh, that I work with, um, Steve over in South Dakota, in the Winter Ideal area, and then up up through um, um, uh, Miller, and they are very, they've been very successful now. Um, Jorgensen Farms there in, in Winter Ideal has been extremely successful. And um, I was also curious, have you had anybody that's testing because we test ran some some cover crops this year with um, droning. They're not charging by the acre. They're charging by the hour. So if you can get the seed, you can run the drone right over the top of the crop, right down on the canopy. And I know a guy that did a thousand acres this year. He was just uh, stunned that he could get it done.
1: I uh, I had I looked at that up at the Bexfield day up in Given, Minnesota, and I thought, hmm. That's pretty cool. (laughs) That's that's that would give an opportunity to get it on a little later and a little bit more accurately than we could with a helicopter or an airplane.
6: Well, and you mentioned too, doing it on small scale. The fun part about that is, you know, one of the things that's critical is getting some moisture. So if you're running a drone. And you can do it on small scale. You can do it right before uh, rain events. And that way, you know, you know, you're not just going out there putting a thousand acres on and crossing your fingers. You can go out there and do 50, 80, 100 acre trials uh, before uh, rain events.
1: And I think and I think that's that's uh, trying lots of different things. I mean, if you if you listen to a Gabe Brown or if you listen to Jorgensen ranches out at Ideal, um, this has been a multiple, multiple year Effort for them to get their program to where it's at, and I think that's that's the other thing that we as farmers we tend to look for that silver bullet. We tend to look for that hot hybrid or that hot herbicide or the hot fertilizer application or something that's going to solve all of our ills. And quite honestly, I don't think we have that anymore. I think the uh, the opportunity we have is in doing lots of small things right. That we don't we don't have that many big home runs. Uh, at our advantage right now that we need to do a lot of small things right and maybe do some things that our neighbors aren't willing to do uh, first. And then if we can show them to be successful. I mentioned before the guys that I farm with, um, I've got 440 out of 3,600 acres. And uh, the things that I've done on an experimental basis have now worked their way into just about all 3,600 acres because they got to see it on my land first, on my dime, uh, with me being open to being ridiculed by the neighbors and things like that, you know? And they saw it on my operation first, and now it's been introduced into just about all their acres. Um, With the exception of RSTC 17 that they still think has to be just foo-foo juice. (laughs) George, I'm sorry.
0: Hey, we know who we're dealing with, Steve. I know who who that man is. And, uh, you know, Nate and I have uh, tried, you know, but you can only uh, offer. It's up to them what they want to do with it. But uh, to see your success uh, after all these years still staying with it, uh, you know, sometimes you just can't fix stupid.
1: Well, yeah, anyway, I can't say that because I rent equipment from them, but...
0: (laughs) <laughs> Steve,
4: Steve I'm curious uh go back to your winter wheat question um uh, north up here now where I'm at we run into uh white mold on the beans yep and I was looking at the idea of running winter wheat just like you did with your drill I was going to do that with my drill and intercede it knowing it will not survive the growing season because I'm putting it in early spring but it'll canopy over my spore so it can't shoot up yeah. your thoughts on that idea
1: um yeah definitely a possibility um i i i have to think about that because i haven't i haven't i haven't approached it from that point of view um hmm, it's definitely got it definitely has some uh some merit to it um Here locally, we've had some people who have gone to to, uh, to forty-four and sixty-inch corn, and then planted the uh, planted the um, cover crops in between them. Um, planting the corn at thirty-four thousand on sixty-inch rows, and then with a lot of cover crops in between them, with the theory that they could maintain corn yields within a reasonable amount and pick it up pick up the the, the lost dollars with pounds of beef. Um, by grazing the, the the mixed cover crops through the years, um, the four guys that we had tried have all have all abandoned it because they have just said that uh, it, it just it, it just didn't work for them with that wider rows. That's why what I'm thinking about what you're saying is is to have the have the wheat between the rows. Um, it, that's that's definitely got some possibility to it. I'd have to think a little bit more about that. <laughs> I think
6: the uh, most important thing is is keeping that wheat alive or getting it up to a height significantly enough so that it will maintain that cover over the top. Dan. What's that? We lost you there for a second. Oh, sorry. I think it's the most important thing is either keeping that wheat alive long enough or getting it tall enough to get a good cover to lay over those um asco spores if you will the, the the actual uh fruiting bodies because um you know if you get it if you'd happen to kill it too soon or lay it down and get it next to the ground it won't be as successful as if you could keep it up physically alive or in a high enough mass over that soil then i think you would accomplish it uh completely so there's there is there would be some hope there uh, the other thing would be um the longer it stays greener, the less interested the fungi are in living underneath it. If it's if it's browning out and dying, they're looking for dead tissue. So they would love that scenario. So the longer it stays greener, the better off you'd be.
1: And that's what I was thinking is, is with the with the uh, white mold spores and the fruiting and the fruiting devices. Um yeah, they're saprophytes. They're looking for dead tissue to live off of until, and so they can put out their spores. And uh, that's why it, it's it's got an interesting concept. That's why I'm I, I, I'm thinking about it. Let's put it that way. White mold is a is a is a is a devil. That and that and sudden death have um, tended to push. Uh, And lots of areas have tended to push row widths back, back out into wider rows. You know, guys that went down to 15s and went down to 7s, white mold is pushing them back toward 30s. White mold.
3: Steve, are you still experiencing um, sudden death since you started incorporating your cover crops?
1: No. Sudden death for me has become uh, almost non-existent.
2: I'm glad and you said I don't that know cause...
1: if it's strictly the cover crops, um, or if it's that it's I've slightly changed the biology of the soils. You know, I've got a i have got I got another thing that that I just want to point out because we just had this conversation today. And that's that somebody said, Oh man, look how the look how the tops of the corn plants are dying out. Uh, the anthracnose has really gotten them. Well, it goes back to anthracnose is a saprophyte. Anthracnose cannot attack a healthy plant and take it down. Uh, for anthracnose to come in and, and then up in this area, that's where we see a lot of the of the corn tops dying out. Has to have an entry point. In most cases, that entry point is, the, is early root damage. And so that's another thing that we're seeing in our operation. Is with the emphasis on early energy in the soil with RSTC RSTC 17 and building organic matter and things like that, and emphasis on early root development in our fields, anthracnose has almost become non-existent. Which again is is is, is a pretty strong statement, but it just it just happens. I was out scouting corn today, and uh, i still got. I've got green plants, you know, everything above the year is still green. I go to my neighbor's field, everything above the year is is yellow and, and, and starting to senesce already. And I think that's because again, uh, the seed bed and the energy available to the seedling is enough higher with the system um, that we're seeing better disease tolerance later in the, in the lifespan of the corn crop. Hopefully that doesn't sound too wacky, but it's it's what we're seeing.
6: Steve, do you uh, also not suffer with firing as bad anymore on your crop?
1: No, I'm not seeing the firing and again, I think it's because as my organic matter levels build and as the uh, the microflora and microfauna in the soils build, I'm getting a, a, a much more consistent release of nitrogen in the soil profile through the growing season and we're not seeing the firing.
6: Well and that's directly correlated with the lack of the anacnos that you're getting. Most people do not understand that the corn plant um, as it functions in life the same enzyme that actually degrades the stalk which when your firing starts the enzyme that begins to degrade the stalk and move the sugars north to the kernels because the plant is going through extreme nutrient deficiency, that same enzyme signal is the enzyme signal to anthracnose, gibberella, diplodia, and fusarium to actually begin to attack the root mass and cause the plant to fall down. Right. That physiology work was done 35, 40 years ago, and it's been fascinating ever since. And so if you are all starting to see all these systems where it's like, oh, I'm not firing anymore. I don't need as much nitrogen. The balance of nitrogen is mostly organic. It's mostly ammonium forms. There's not a lot of nitrates. Bam. It's all coming together and the science is there to support it. And what I'm finding fascinating is you've already told us you're not an expert, but that whole idea of the things that you're seeing and the things that you're making recognition of there's science behind it, so congratulations your your visual your visual uh uh abilities are are actually dead on with the science machine so
1: even a blind hog finds an acorn there you go uh but anyway, George, like I said, George really wanted this to be a conversation about about cover crops and and you know i'm all I can say is, is that as you and your customers look at anything, please avoid uh, being labeled as uh, a diehard no-tiller, a diehard cover cropper, a diehard anything. Find what works for you and uh, experiment enough that you find out works for you and then always be willing to change because I've had people who have missed opportunities because they say, well, I'll never no-till. Well, What do you call what do you call no-till? Well, if I'm not plowing, I'm I'm no-tilling. No, that's not the case at all. You know, you can go to a minimum till or reduced till or something like that. I just had a guy in church tell me the other day, He says, "Yeah," he says, "Boy, if you want a if you want a good vertical till machine, there's going to be all kinds of them for sale in my neighborhood because people are sick of them." And I said, "Why are they sick of them?" Well, because their residue is blowing around so much. I said, Well, how deep are they running them? Oh, four, five inches with the baskets down, And I said, so they're 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 cutting up all this all the stalks and all the residue and fluffing it up and leaving it on a surface. Of course, the first strong north wind is going to pick it all up. as I said, why don't you run it in an inch and a half and just use it to to very gradually pin the residue to the soil so you can start a little you know, plan decomposition. Well, that was lost on him because he wanted to run a vertical till like he used to run a disc, and they're not a disc. No, you know, I'm not saying vertical till is the way to go either. But I think once we 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 just have to encourage people to always have a slightly different mindset and and just to consider some other uh, opportunities that they could that they could have to do things differently. So,
5: Steve, hey, what? we're kind of excited we're doing a field with uh a strip till and banding the fertilizer this fall uh if we if we're able to do it what i would like hope to be able to do going forward is to be able to do that in the fall uh potentially run cover crops uh you know maybe even, i don't even know when the ideal time to do it would be maybe in late 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 july early august yeah. try to interseed yeah. mean, so if I'm going to do that, I'm going to get maybe August, September, you know, maybe two months of growth and then come in with a strip till. Is that going to hurt any of the benefits I'm going to be getting from that or?
1: No, I don't think so, because you're not going to be doing enough soil disturbance with your with your strip till. Um, I again, I'm, I would be very interested in a strip till. Um, I don't own the equipment. And we're on twenty two inch rows, and the strip till just wasn't wasn't practical for us. so without the strip till, I started looking for other ways to do things. Um, but I think strip tills definitely got its potential. I want to just step back for just a second on to, on how when I applied my nitrogen as twenty eight percent at the spike stage with a stream bar, um we We took an old eighty foot sprayer, and we converted it to stream bars, and they I think they they cost us uh, buying them in bulk. they cost us like sixteen dollars a row. And uh, we did it. And we were very thrilled with it. I went to the Bexfield day, and they were comparing um, applying nitrogen with a stream bar over standing corn with the two plus two by two by two. And they were showing better yield increases with the stream bar over the two by two by two. And that program probably is gonna cost you about 120 bucks a, a, a row at least to convert the planter. And we did it for $16 a row with a stream bar. There again, just sometimes thinking outside the box and looking at other ways of doing it. You know, I'm, I guess I'm in the I'm in the business. I would like to try to make money and not give it all back to an implement dealer. And uh, maybe that's a dumb way to think of it. But but sometimes just looking at a different way to do things. is It, it gives you some opportunities.
3: Steve, when you applied that with the stream bar, did you stabilize your your? 19- yes, I did. I did, okay, I did the same thing. <laughs> I Wouldn't I use Steve George?
0: <laughs> I, uh, I would, I'd say cetane. And uh, I, Steve, I, 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 I'm glad that. Jason asked you that instead of me having to ask.
1: <laughs> no, I use cetane as a stabilizer.
3: And oh, and, wow. uh, and by applying that with stream bars and, and putting that nitrogen, you know, right down the world, the corn, it, it, how much did you kill?
1: I uh, had very little. And we, we, I'll tell you, it was, we weren't exactly perfectly dead on time. I would have liked to have done it as at Spike, but we were already starting to get into some V1. Um, and uh, boy, no, n- n- no, no kill, actually, probably no setback even. Uh, we did have maybe an inch of rain shortly after, which we possibly diluted it and got it down into the root zone a little bit quicker. But uh, how we first even looked at that was, is a couple of years ago we were very wet in the spring, and uh, you know a lot of guys really struggled. They were trying to get nitrogen on the spring ahead of planting, and they were slowing down their planting operation to try to get nitrogen out there. And I got started thinking, you know, for the the most critical time. And the farmer's year is getting it planted, getting the seed in the ground early, in good conditions where it can get up, get out of the ground. Um, you know, before some of you are on, we were talking about in this part of Minnesota, our we need to have things out of the ground in early June so we can be taking full advantage of our sunlight. And and that means uh in lots of cases. I mean, not out of the ground, but I mean, ready to reproductive stage in June. Uh, if I have the opportunity to plant soybeans in April, I'll do it every year. I I treat them, I put, uh, I put RSDC 17 down as an additional, as additional energy source, and I will plant soybeans in this part of the world. I planted them as early as April 17th. Uh, all it does for me is increases my yields by getting that plant up, getting it flowered closer to our summer, sol- summer solstice. Um, and every farm magazine you pick up lately talks about early planting soybeans, but I would sure attest to that. But you can't just throw them out there naked. If you throw them out there with some seed treatment and some RST-17 as, as an additional energy source, uh, early planted soybeans pay off. I think the other thing I just—I'm—I'm I'm not bragging, but
2: I one thing I want to add is that uh,
1: my farms are not exactly pristine uh, places on earth. Um, we were, I, I farm mostly family land, and unfortunately, my grandfather didn't uh, didn't decide to start farming until 1910. So we didn't get the first choice of all the land. Um, I run all the way from peat bog to blow sand. And uh, it's it's been fun to 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 uh, to get the the productivity of the land back to back to where I can be proud of it again. And I think for a lot of people that could be something that for them to consider too, so. Steve,
3: I also want to go back to where you're talking about using your vertical tillage tool and crimping some of that uh, you know, down in the ground to keep it from blowing. Have you done anything with uh with biology and energy um on spraying um, after you do that? Because you're getting some of the biology um stirred up onto some of that foliage as you know, you're yeah you know, working it have you done anything to increase breaking that down so that you will have less blowing and get some of those nutrients back
1: i i have considered it i haven't pulled the trigger on that yet um you know even um <laughs> i <laughs> i want to leave it there i don't want to get it too broken down before frost um uh, just because I want it, I want it there and I want it breaking down in this, in the spring again, to feed the, to feed the seedling. Um, you know, we've had people who have, who have sprayed 28%. We've had people put liquid manure on. We've had a lot of things trying to break down the corn stalks, you know, corn stalks faster. Um, right now, I guess I'm of the mind that breaking the corn stalks down faster isn't necessarily a good thing because, um, uh, the way we're doing it, that corn stock decomposition is releasing nutrients to the to the the growing plant. So if I've got corn stalks still breaking down in my soybeans, um, when they're at, you know, V3, V4, V five, that's not a bad thing because I, I kind of see I think they're feeding my corn, my my soybeans, but there again. ah. Uh, I'm gonna be quiet for a while. I want the rest of you guys to talk about yourselves.
0: Well, I got a question, but
4: unfortunately, this this makes me
1: uncomfortable, George.
4: (laughs) Uh, Steve, I'm curious how you do. You incorporate your uh, cover crops into the soil, or do you just let them winter die, plant right into them? And if you do,
1: I just let them. I let them winter die, and I plant right into them.
4: Okay, so what's your opinion on if a guy did a fall tillage on a green manure versus a brown?
1: Um, you mean if you got a green manure in the fall, should you do tillage?
4: Well, and the reason I ask is I'm uh, um, curious because it's going to go right into an early season uh, barley, for instance, you know, or you're trying to get her in as quick as you can. So you don't really want to have to till again in the spring right um and you got some of that decomposition already happening uh yeah what's your opinion on that
1: uh, then i think if, if for that crop that you're going to come back in with in the spring if it's sensitive like barley then i think yeah the fall the fall tillage a light fall tillage wouldn't be a bad thing to do you know like with a vertical tillers or something you know something pretty light um you know um I don't know, I it, it, it's really interesting a few years ago in a wet year when we had a lot of drowned outs. Well, I also want to tell
2: you back in uh, 2019,
1: I was 100% prevent plant. We were that wet and I was 100% prevent plant. And uh, I waited again until about the uh, middle of July and went in and no-till drilled my cover crops on the middle of July. And that's probably, in retrospect, one of the best things I ever did. Um, I did a multi-species mix and it really, really improved the soil and really, really improved the the percolation uh, rates on uh, or infiltration rates on my soils and some things like that. But the reason why I bring it up is that same year I I had a young neighbor who was interested in in uh, cover crops and so he borrowed our no-till drill and he went out there and seeded multi-species cover crop into his potholes and experienced the same thing I did. I mean, he had tremendous radish and turnip growth and it was really in, in, improving his infiltration rate. His dad called me up one day and said, well... How in the hell are we going to get through these things with the with the field cultivator in the spring? And I said, don't worry about it. You won't even hardly know they're there come spring. I mean, the, those, those radishes and those turnips will decompose enough. Um, they'll, they'll offer, you know, entryways for, for snow and water to get down to and you don't worry about it. You will have no problem with going through it with a field cultivator in the spring or better yet, don't even do tillage in the spring, just no-till into it. That had him so concerned that one uh, one day when his son was gone, he went in and disc ripped it in the fall because <laughs> he just didn't know how he was going to deal with that, all that residue in the spring. I bring it up because, you know, that's, again, sometimes people have this mindset, well, we, we just can't do it that way. Well, try it. Try it. Try something, you know just if you try something different, it's
2: pretty rewarding I've found.
1: George.
0: Uh, Steve, uh, I've got a question. Um, What about uh, the aeration? the improvements you mentioned the better percolation in your soil, but would you not correlate that the better root system that you have from your cover crops would enhance the aeration of your soil so that you can get more oxygen in there to the aerobic bacteria?
2: unmuted there we go I have
1: i've have that um also um wormholes um I've, I've I've seen that great increase in in the the beneficial night crawlers and earthworms and things like that um yeah I think that uh it, it, the root holes from the cover crops along with the wormholes and everything else yeah it, it has improved the infiltration and yeah I think it's improved the oxygenation um you know that's one of the reasons why I don't get the outs anymore is because I can get oxygen into the soil instead of having the water replace the oxygen so i would I would agree with you hey gentlemen I, I'm gonna let you keep talking I just got a uh, I just got a came kind of an urgent phone call here so i'm gonna I'm gonna put myself on mute and you guys talk for a while I gotta return this call
2: Uh, Andy, are you on?
0: Yes, sir, I'm here. Hey, Andy. uh, Well, I thought that uh, maybe since Steve uh, needed a break there, uh, certainly uh, your experience and what we've been seeing and what we saw last week out there in Iowa while we're out there with Larry and uh, Jeremy and others, uh, certainly we're seeing where the the program, you know, having like kind of what Steve talked about, it's not just one item that's really making a difference. It's when we put it all together into a program. And I remember when Dan talked last December there at uh, the meeting in Iowa, the annual meeting with Larry with X, that, you know, there's so many variables that go into this mix and that I think certainly, and I believe that everyone I see on the screen here that's on this call tonight are all like-minded in that we agree that we can all bring different parts of the puzzle, and what we're doing tonight is sharing on this call of things that I've learned a tremendous amount of tonight about cover crops that I didn't know that I know a lot more now, and i, I and thanks, you know, for what you do, Andy, with the biologicals. But speaking to that, the necessity of having the aerobic bacteria at these certain timings, especially like early on in furrow, especially when we have adverse conditions, Uh, it could be too wet or too dry or too cold. You know, there's things that uh, happen, you know, from that, initial germination of that seed forward through that entire crop that a lot of times is totally out of our control, but yet we can do some things to help ourselves. And I was wondering, you know, you speak to that from the biological standpoint.
7: Well, yes, thank and I've been pleasantly overwhelmed with the the information that's been shared so far. So thanks to everybody that's chimed in, Dan as well. And George to your point, you know, um there's been a lot i think that you know we've noticed biologically and with the introduction of some different species of covers but it it definitely seems like from what i've seen you know the more that that we can increase the amount of oxygen induction in the soil via you know some of the the things that we've done with you know the carbon works products the change in the tillage practices however that's accomplished um it definitely seems like the production of the aerobic bacteria was, you know, significantly increased and that translated directly to what Dan mentioned earlier in enzyme production and sugar synthesis and protein synthesis going up into the grain. And I think that's why we saw, you know, some of the responses that we did, not just with the yields, but also with, you know, the disease pressures being down and um, the, re- the drought resistance being what it was. So, um, I mean, I think there's a lot to be learned for you know how that all kind of translates how we can keep the amount of of oxygen and the the uh, the things that we need airflow wise in the soil for the for the biology to replicate quickly and effectively, but um, uh, also want to mention that you know and it was brought up earlier that you know there's there's a lot that we don't know yet about how they metabolize things and how you know if we can increase what we're doing and and focus on getting energy timed out you know so that the microbes are able to break it down that that their metabolic processes are going to release things you know at the right times and in the right phases that that we need as well so um i don't know if that answers your question but those are some things that i kind of picked up as i you know traveled around and listened to guys and looked at you know what we were seeing in the field but definitely you know agree and and Acknowledge everything that's been said so far, and just thankful that we have, again, an opportunity to share and talk to each other and and make the observations.
0: Oh, great! Thanks, Dan. You got any uh, thing you would like to add to that? Uh,
6: uh, yeah, I, I I'd like to comment. Um, it's it's fascinating that that you ask a question about uh, aerobic bacteria.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: And the fascinating thing to me is we have for decades just assumed because our soils and our biology is up near the surface that everything aerobically has been going fine. Mm-hmm. And what we're finding is at this point, things are so dilapidated that it doesn't mean that we don't have air We just don't have any diverse biology anymore. I found fascinating that when Steve said he cut out anhydrous, um, yeah, anhydrous can be challenging to, to biology. But what anhydrous does in some senses is provide so much readily available nitrogen that microbes that are very voracious in eating up organic matter and especially humic acid. it provides such a huge nitrogen source that the aerobic organisms that can do that go berserk. Mm -hmm. And in some cases they are not the organisms that we really need in a diverse population. There is no diverse population. They are basically ruling the roost. And so what we found is if you think about what Steve has been telling you with this whole idea of, of cover cropping, is that these crops that are feeding the soil, they're feeding them sugars of all different types, amino acids of all different types, especially as you diversify the species. And you've got a food source out there and think about it. I mean, if if, if you enjoy going to a fine restaurant, you probably don't go there just to eat French fries. You probably are like, well, I'd like to have some steak, I'd like to have some salad, I'd like to have maybe an appetizer, or, you know, maybe an extra course. And how about a little dessert here and maybe a little wine with my dinner? That is a very satisfying meal. You don't have to eat very much of it. You but you go home full, you go home happy. It's the same thing that we see in the soil. If we we just we think that because we said aerobic bacteria, as long as there's oxygen, everything's fine and the biology is okay. And you know we're finding out with the aluminum levels that are in the soil today, these soils have been annihilated. And so we are we are fascinated by the fact that in some cases, simple, subtle things like Steve has been re- reporting on tonight are starting in a very, very short period of time, making huge differences in the way these soils are transitioning. And by oxygenating, your carbon source like you do and making it readily available as if you want to call it the weoc as, as the guys are talking about in the Haney test, the waterable water extractable organic carbon or carbon that's available to both plants and microbes is making a huge, huge impact in the way these crops establish themselves lay down roots and turn around and feed that very environment that's feeding them. And that's, that's, to me, is fascinating.
2: Oh.
3: Dan, that was very well said. And I could not agree more. I mean, that's, that was, that was awesome. Thank yeah. you.
7: No charge. <laughs> He's only here. You know He's only here for tonight. Yeah, uh, you know, I like I like what Dan said about you know the diversification of the food source too. I mean, it's something that we've obviously tried in that in the Boost product is to you know introduce some different forms of sugars at different times, and it seems like there's there's been a real difference in development with that too. So I appreciate that coming up, and you know, definitely see an impact there too, but. I think that's. I mean, <clears throat> I don't know how down the rabbit hole we want to go, but that's that's a huge unknown. How much the the toxins that are already in the soil are really playing havoc with, you know, what we need. And I, I mean, I just think that there's there's still a ton of work to to do in diagnosing that and figuring out how to really address it. But um, excellent points, Stan. Thanks for chiming in with that.
1: One of the things that first attracted me to George, uh, beside his glowing personality, was his concept of reducing salt in our agriculture. And, you know, he pointed out that uh, just about all of our fertilizers are salt-based. Um, our glyphosate and a lot of our herbicides are salt-based. And what did the Romans do when they overtook a country back in biblical times? <laughs> they salted the land so that the people had to, had to rely on Rome to feed them and when i started thinking about that i thought okay i can't reduce salt totally but i sure as heck can reduce or neutralize salt around this around the developing seed and i think that that was one of my big aha moments in working with george was is just Let's get let's get salt away from the developing seedlings so it can get growing and get going like we like we want it to. And that's uh, that was was a big thing that for me was probably the first aha moment. Was uh, let's change let's change some of the chemistry in the soil here.
3: Or or as well, Steve, you can take a product that is high in salt and you can treat it and reduce it and make it work better, um, you know, in in the furrow as well. So you don't necessarily have to cut it out. You can add the carbon works to it, it cut the salt, and allow it to work uh, more efficiently and not not hurt.
0: Yep. Well, that's, you know, Jason, what you just said is that that's what, I I think uh, most everyone on the call, you know, knows my history, but this all started evolving for me in 2005 in that, again, I said there's too many straws in the glass in Florida drinking our fresh water out of our superficial aquifer, which is two to 300 foot deep. And my ag wells became totally saline. We went from an EC of one to an EC of five. And to give you a correlation in TDS that's from 640 to like 3,600 TDS. And I think most of y'all would know that that kind of poor water quality with that kind of uh, salinity in it, electrical conductivity, so to speak, you're actually then so detrimental to the biologicals that you couldn't get a seed to germinate. You can't get anything to live in it. And then When you've got beach sand down here in Florida with a CEC of 3 and a 0.3 three tenths of one percent organic matter. Uh, you know, one, earth are you farming down here? Uh it's what most people up there in the Midwest said to me, but, you know, we are what we are. But that's what led me on this carbon trek starting in two thousand five was to find something that potentially could buffer some of that salinity and then of course, what we developed at Carbon Works is a product, carbon-based product that has energy, as Steve is so eloquently alluded to tonight. That low pH, having that extra hydrogen uh, energy, but also having the oxygen, the positive molecular oxygen, because of we've got to have those aerobic bacteria function uh, along with all the other you know biologicals, and so that is what we were after was to bring. Energy and oxygen tied to carbon so that we could not only reduce some of that uh, salt level that Steve mentioned, but also use that carbon as a buffer. It can buffer that burn from that salt, minimize some of that damage so that we could get the seed germinated. And when I first showed up in Minnesota with Steve in around 2010, we actually... Uh, we're going up against 10340, uh, 6 nothing, water, you know, the conventional starters of those who were still using starters, and that's where the RSTC17 in furrow with water was giving such a boost, and especially up there in Steve's part of the world where <laughs> they are a long way from 55 degree soil temp to to be adequately, you know planting corn with a good chance of germination. And so we were getting very substantial germination rates, 98, 99%, which we've done for 12 years now in a row in Minnesota in cold, wet soil. And then, of course, once they plant and they've already seen the robins, they'll get two more cold rains or snow on top of it. And of course, you had the lodging and you had those seeds struggling to try to get through. And I think one of the most complimentary things that I have accomplished up in Minnesota, over all these years in corn and beans, was that growers always said that they had a more uniform germination. We're not necessarily going to be the tallest or you know the fastest, but we were uniform, and that uniform consistency is what added to yield, and we always had less skips in the field. We had more seed germinate. And you know the joke was with in Steve's business being in the seed business and a, a truly a, incredible seed man. You know, Steve and I would joke about, look, sell more seed, Steve, but sell it to more people. Don't sell one grower more seed. Let's germinate what he's got. The seed's expensive, and everything else is too. But uh, that is where we actually. You know, made our mark in the Midwest on corn and soybeans was in Minnesota in those early days of being able to germinate more seed by putting that energy and oxygen with carbon as a buffer, but in that seed trench with the
2: actual seed. Total agreement. <laughs>
8: Oh, thank you, Steve.
0: I can uh, can agree to that too. (laughs) Jeremy, are you still on the call still?
2: Did you mean Jerry?
0: Well, Jerry, I'm glad you're on and uh I, I appreciate yeah. you getting on. I know you got on late and had some trouble getting on, but I'm glad you're on and and I know okay. you do a lot with regenerative ag uh there in Iowa. Uh please uh feel free. The floor's open if you would like to like to uh add to our meeting.
8: You know, Steve mentioned the Haney test. I wonder how many of the other sixteen um are using the Haney test and what you're finding.
6: Uh, this is Dan. I can comment a little bit to that. Um, there are more and more people using it all the time, and we are using it more for indicators. As I talk with growers around the country, we're using it more for indicators and you know directional sense rather than just something like the old traditional tests that we've gotten in the past. Because as the stuff that we've been talking about here this, this evening, uh, finding out that that you know nutrition can be off the scale nutrition can be in the toilet but crop response is coming from a whole lot more stuff than just the nutrition uh the availability of it based on what an old standard soil test gave us and so um more and more people are looking at it but obviously because of the cost they're not doing it on such a large scale which has actually become um i think enjoyable to some people to realize that as long as they've got the indicators and they're figuring out things in the right direction, they're starting to worry less and less every day about the fertility levels and more and more about the life in the soil. So it's been kind of fun to watch that.
8: Definitely. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, we're homeschooling our own high school freshman boy here, and uh, we we taught him quite extensively about the Haney test, and uh, together we devised a kind of a. <clears throat> Top Haney test, which turned out to be very fascinating. We have some two-inch <clears throat> clear plastic tubes, which we filled half full of different types of soil. And um, in, in one test, for example, there's almost pure sand. Not quite Florida sand, George, but it's uh, sandy soil around here, very low CEC. Another one, we had some very rich loam that was... Um, Filled up under compost and, and sealed those tubes <clears throat> after applying a, a moisture, uniform moisture to it. And the test was <clears throat> to um, insert a candle, see how long the candle would survive lit in that tube as an indicator of how much biological oxygen remained or how much the microbes had consumed in that CO2. And uh, in the sandy soil, the candles lasted 15 seconds before they exhausted the oxygen. In the biologically alive soil, with lots of microbial activity, when you drop the candle in it, it snuffed out instantly. In other words, there was just nothing left but carbon dioxide in that tube. So that's kind of a shorthand a schoolboy approach to seeing how active uh, microbes are in consuming nitrogen and generating carbon dioxide. Anyway, it
2: was a lot of fun.
0: Wow, thank you. That's fascinating.
2: And I
6: think, you know, those, those, those simple little scientific tests last longer in people's minds than all the stuff written down on paper.
8: Maybe so, because it's so visual, so dramatic, so short. I remember walking on a tree hat field over in Illinois, to Princeton one time, and he walked out in the soybean field that was up at our hips. He said, did you know that 45% of the dry matter in these beans comes from the respiration of carbon dioxide in the soil below us?
6: And I, I never
0: heard that quantified like that. I thought it fascinating. And I well, think, Jerry, you know, yeah, no, go ahead, Dan.
6: No, i just—I was, just, was going to comment according to that. I, you know, one of the things that that people don't understand about soybeans, that, you know, they can't compete as, as as what we call a C3 plant compared to a corn, which is a C4 plant, a tropical grass plant that is so much more efficient with sunlight. The biggest limitation to soybeans is energy. And what we've tried to help people understand where they have high organic matter, I said, you know, start figuring out ways to get more energy, relative energy in this and start chewing up this organic matter. Uh, this whole idea of, of everybody worried about the climate change, I think Steve's had some very interesting things he said about that is, you know, there, there's a recognition that that carbon dioxide is real and carbon dioxide is is an issue. But more carbon dioxide in that canopy means way more beans because beans are terrible at converting sunlight energy compared to a corn plant. And so anything that allows you to get that soil cranked up, biologically active, cranking out carbon dioxide in the middle of summer underneath that canopy is going to make it more efficient. One of the reasons why, you know, that along with the fact that the beans are able to use moisture in through the canopy at night, as long as they've got soil underneath them that's giving off carbon dioxide and they pull moisture that's why they survive so much better than corn because corn can't do that and it's just fascinating when you take people away from this whole idea of of what is really giving me the yield it's not 400 pounds of potash and 200 pounds of phosphate and some additional nitrogen it's the fact that if you can take all these things and balance them out and aim the energy in the right direction anything that increases energy is going to make make a plant way 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 more efficient
8: right on
3: i'll vote for that
6: <laughs> somebody well, needs to run know, for yeah. president
3: i dan you're exactly right um we need <laughs> the co2 you know over our fields is is good it's a good thing
6: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 important, just like Steve said a while ago, you know, it's important to lay it down. But it's for the plants. uh, If you can find something like, you know, Georgia's carbon products that, that provide extra available, readily available energy in the early part of the season. Yeah. Keep it cool. Get the plant off to a good start and then turn that soil loose. I mean, crank it up and and let it ride because that's the most important thing to us. And once we get a canopy above that soil, we want that soil to be releasing as much carbon as we can get it to release because we'll actually release a fair amount of carbon is carbon dioxide, but we're going to lay down a whole lot more in root masses and good canopy above that with thick leaves and and, and properly growing crops and crops that last better till the end of the season. You know, Steve said, you know, his, his top his crop was still alive. The plant health is tremendous. Think about that plant living that many more days or weeks and then laying down, like compared to everybody else's who's already dead. The differences are not small by any means. We don't, we don't recognize the major differences in that.
3: The longer that plant is green, the more sugars it's going to produce into that fruit. And the more sugars that it can have, the more starch will put into it at the end and be bigger and better.
6: Yeah. With leftovers for the soil whenever, whenever the stalks are laid down too. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
8: Yeah, we've, got, so we- we've got a very good producer over here at Web City named uh, Dave Olson, and he's tried over the last 20, 30 years for all kinds of foliars, all kinds of nutrients. He said everything everything that was $9 in a jug he's tried, been terribly frustrated with beans. But he said the only thing that works fairly consistently is late foliars. So it's up it's up one and beyond. As long as it's green, he it keeps spraying. Uh, traces uh, whatever he, he senses is needed to keep that soybean growing and generating uh, carbon dioxide uh, from the roots, and that combination is the only thing that's moved his beans from uh, 50s into the high 60s. Yeah,
6: and sometimes that's something as simple as you know the sucrose machine that's necessary within that soybean plant to keep the nodules alive in the late season. You have to have mm-hmm. sucrose, and if you get into stress and you start dropping the sucrose levels in that bean because glucose is dropping because it's not being efficient, the, the nodules go off. And so once the nodules go off, your nitrogen machine is now working in the soil. So if your soils aren't moist and they're drying out, you're done. Yep. You're finished. Yeah, well, so, it yeah.
8: like, adds, adds about a pound or two of sugar uh, just just sugar in every, every foliar trip, and makes makes five or six of them late in the season
6: on Yeah,
2: beans.
6: Yeah. yeah. And, and there are, there's other science behind that sugar as it goes on that leaf by spreading out and prismatically making that light that comes onto the surface of the leaf pass through that sugar molecule. The whole idea of spreading out that sunlight to make the plant make more sugar because the sunlight t- touches more leaf, more cells within the leaf. And then that blue light range, everyone that gets touched by blue light makes makes chlorophyll production and and, uh, and photosynthate. There, there's so much science that is so much fun. And you realize that we've given away most of our money to the fertilizer companies. And I'm not saying that's bad. We needed to do that through the years because until we got to this point, only the people who could do some of those things are the the ones that in some cases are still surviving but there's so much wonderful science to be able to understand this and go back to simple products that are inexpensive, that allow us as good or better return on investment than the fertilizer did for years, that I think that's what's stunning most people. And they are excited as they can be and half scared to death at the same time because they're afraid something's just going to go. They're going to be called a miner or the soils are going to go backwards. They're going to be so out of fertilizer, they're not going to produce anymore. And that is so far from the truth. But, but Steve said it a while ago, keep yourself squared up and don't worry about what people call you because it's not their business anyway it's your farm and and your your approach
8: right on
2: very great
0: yeah. Well, thanks, Dan, and thanks, Jerry. And, um, you know, the thing, Dan, that we had been, you know, advocating this year uh, for all these years, but especially in this last year of, you know, educating growers that they all know the photosynthetic equation. I think everybody does, but they very rarely looked at the respiration side because just what has been talked about, and what you were saying, Dan, is that that sugar that goes down to the roots to the biologicals in the soil they're hungry too and they're eating you know up to and sometimes more than unfortunately 50 percent of the photosynthetic sugar produced by the plant is being sent down to the root system to get those guys to do their job which is break down the nutrients and you know make water uh, available and transport it up so that we can build more sugar in the plant. But that breakdown of that sugar with oxygen, the microbes are after the energy, and what they release is CO2 and water. Just so happens to be the ingredients needed uh, you know, to remake more sugar. So what y'all were saying earlier about the soybean canopy as it's canopied over and being able to attract possibly more of that CO2 that was broken down from the sugar, then that increases again, the photosynthesis. So this is a symbiotic relationship that is very mutually beneficial for everybody. But until we started really guys like you, Dan, that have been doing this for a long, long time, Larry, uh, Andy, others, I mean, Jerry, you know, there's a great number here of, you know, on the call of us that are uh, much older than a lot of the younger men on the call tonight. But, you know, we're sharing with them the things that we had to learn the hard way that wasn't in the book and wasn't really mainstream. And, but what we have been sharing is actually the truth. And that's why we chose, uh to start having the calls like this that we could all share. If uh, for those who are willing to share, uh, that's what we're after. And uh, again, you know, I always have asked uh, every call, if you have something you want to hear about and a topic that uh, you want to, you know, talk about on a future call, please let us know. Just, uh, you know, text me or call me or email me or Jason or anybody on the call that you want to, you know, share with. let us know. We 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 want this to be informative, and you know we've chosen to do this as a as a service to fellow growers to help uh, all of us do a better job. So uh, we're wide open for your comments and suggestions.
5: Well, thank you, George, for putting these on. This is wonderful. We definitely need to get Doctor McNeil on one of these.
0: Oh, I know. And I invited Michael. I did uh, send him an invitation and, uh, you know, but again, I know not everyone can get on and, but we, you know, are trying to do them uh, routinely. We've been able to, this is our third call uh, in the last probably two months and we want to have more in the future, uh, knowing that we're soon going into harvest and everybody's going to be, you know, wait until, you
2: know, Right, but that's great too
0: if uh guys can uh you know share in while they're in the combine.
4: Well I'm curious, uh we're talking about the sugars and pumping it into the ground and everything. Is there to kind of tie it back to cover crops now? Can you is a cover when does a cover crop uh is it too young in a time to start shooting exit dates down or does it gotta be a certain size, age? Kind of a dumb question, but um my my pertaining to the fact, could we be putting a cover crop in too late and wasting money?
3: Jake, uh, I don't think I know the exact answer to that, and, and I, maybe somebody else does. But I I've uh, put cover crops in uh, down even down here up until the first of December. My thought and my uh, of my thought process of this is. As long as I can get something growing in my ground and have a green leaf above ground and living and able to produce photosynthesis and produce exudates down into the soil to feed the biology, then I'm winning. No matter yeah. whether it's too early or too late, as long as I do
7: it, I'm winning. Okay, fair enough. Jason, that makes Jason, sense. To your point, uh, and Dan might chime in on this too. But I got I, nope. Uh, Jason, can you hear me? I lose you?
3: Absolutely, yes. That's a loss.
7: <laughs> okay, uh, I was gonna say Dan might be able to. Dan might be able to add on, but um, we did a little bit of research on that, and there were s- several articles that kind of got pulled in, but. Uh, there was a direct correlation with any green mass and, and the, the response biologically. And the number was anywhere from 500 to 1,000 times more CFUs, basically in the soil of biological activity, just on just on a live root mass. So it seemed like if you could get anything growing at all, there was going to be a net benefit regardless of the time.
3: Ah, well, very good. Thank you, Andy. That kind of that backs up my my thoughts.
6: Then, thank you. And and I think you know one of the things to always consider there. We oftentimes because we work within an industry that provides products, um, you know, crop to crop. We talk about biological products and applying biological products to crops and also to cover crops. Realize this, that if all you did is just put a drop of a biological product that has very, very high counts, um, and you were only doing that in, let's say, instead of the normal rate being um, 16 ounces for, for a crop in the furrow, let's say, if all you did was put out one to two ounces in water or put on a light seed treatment on every seed once that root comes out all the bets are off because that plant now takes over what it needs to do the soil begins to feed that plant and the plant begins to feed that soil and the microbial numbers that happen within a matter of hours would astound you your number your your mind can't wrap its itself around the numbers that start so all is not as it seems And I think this is the fun part about where we start learning about soils and and the productivity quotient and the biological side and the the plant and soil interactions and what's possible, because even a small wheat plant with just two or three or four leaves that were coming on in, in, let's say it's even in a given row with biology growing in it, that soil next year in that area is not the same. It is in far, far, far improved soil, even if the wheat crop dies. At some point, or you kill it, the soil that's underneath where those wheat plants grow is, is 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 fascinating. And just two or three years of that in a row will change the soil significantly to the point where you don't recognize it so much anymore. It does entirely different things than it used to.
2: <laughs> well, thanks, Dan. That's great. I appreciate the uh, the input. Um...
6: George must be skipping out a signal.
5: I was going to ask Dan a question on that point where you're just getting something to grow. Does it matter what kind of plant that is? Does it matter if it's oats, turnips, winter peas? I mean, does that matter?
6: It it really does not. Um, I mean, even weeds serve a purpose. Weeds give you indicators of what's going on in certain parts of the field. Oftentimes, you know, we'll see different weed patches out there, and people are like, "Well, that's because you know the weeds make seeds, and the and the, the the seeds make patches." Well, yeah, there's truth to that. But the reason certain certain weeds grow in certain areas is because they're indicating to you that certain nutrients are low, and those weeds that grow in there oftentimes are actually Releasing certain nutrients to those areas, you'll you'll recognize that with dandelions and calcium, and and with um, uh, giant ragweed and iron and different things like that. The, the the type what I normally do, and I think Steve actually uh, was referring to this back early in his in his presentation, that when you're coming to a corn crop, when you're coming to a grass crop, you need something that has some leguminous or or broadleaf background in it to really make the soil best for the corn crop the following season. It's almost like you know a miniature version of crop, crop rotation because grass crops really love the amino acids and sugars and proteins that are given off by broadleaf weeds, especially leguminous ones. If you've got soybeans coming or a pea crop or something that you're gonna grow that's a legume crop, the grasses that are planted before that give off the right combination of amino acids and sugars and proteins for that legume crop, they love each other, you know, in in in, the, in that scenario. So, if you can put in two or you know two or three different types of crops, um, or if you only got one choice coming to soybeans, is one of the reasons why rye has been so good because rye is deep rooted. It gives off a lot of stuff. It's a grass crop, and the soybeans love it. Plus. Rye is very, very good at releasing manganese and and the soybeans have been, you know, grossly manganese deficient for years in many of these soils because of the glyphosate applications. So it really doesn't matter. Um, The only thing I do caution people is if you get lots and lots and lots of of, uh, turnips and radishes, they make lots of nitrate. And be careful about putting too many radishes in front of of a soybean crop with nitrate because, you know, when that nitrate, as long as that nitrate comes out and it washes away, that's one thing. But nitrates are your blocking mechanism, your blocking chemical signal that keeps nodules from forming on roots. And so if you've got way too much early nitrogen, you may get good growth of the soybeans and you pull up the plants. It's like, well, where's my nodule? They haven't started yet. Well, it's because you've got so much nitrate that the beans are, actually, you know, growing too lush too early in the season on that nitrate and the nitrate being there is, is shutting down your ability to make nodules. So,
5: so that's a, that's an important point there. I've never thought of it that way to where potentially your cover crop or cover crop mix depends on the crop it's following.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: Is that why guys have struggled with rye going into corn because mm-hmm. it's not suited it's not doing what it's not doing what you want it to do for that course
6: if you kill it soon enough oftentimes you never see any problems with allelopathy but if you get too big a rye and you get it planted in there and you still get it killed that's when you'll see problems with allelopathy too so yeah it's 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 challenging to to make that system work effectively um, with rye and corn it can be done but you need to make sure that you don't let rye get uncontrollably growth. Uh, growing in front of a corn crop—that's a no-no. Yeah.
5: Interesting. So that's that's where, and like I guess that's where a potential a different cover crop mix, depending on what we're growing for the next season. Is that what you're kind of? That's what you're suggesting? Yeah, if you can, yeah, if, if,
6: a- if you can, if you can diversify a little bit before a corn crop and get some kind of a broadleaf or a legume growing in there. That's why even. You know, even a poor clover crop, uh, you know, that, that grows, you know, through the winter uh, and has a little bit of growth in the spring that gets killed is still better, you know, than than lots and lots and lots and lots of rye. So, well,
5: that's, Speaking of that, trying to get a legume or some sort of nitrogen fixation plant, uh, Try and, and potentially having, you know, a cover crop that kills in the winter, so you're not having to come back in the spring and terminate are you getting enough fixation with a uh, with like a winter pea
6: it's been my experience that most guys that you know do get them up and grow and yeah you can and, and and there's other things that you can do to encourage them to grow in the fall a little bit because they're a cooler season crop so you have time if you can get the winter peas going whether it is in the fall or even you know late winter, uh, if you could, you know, there's no way to get it frost seeded typically and get it to survive. But yeah, the, most of the people who have put that in have found you know a, a much more superior growth in the corn in my experience in the last few years than those who just had a you know a single a single uh, uh, grass crop or something like that growing.
5: Thanks for all that insight.
6: Oh, you're welcome. It, you know this this is you know this is this is where we're headed for the future. I mean, it's not. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to do it, but, you know, those who are looking to transition soils have got to think about feeding the soil just like we feed everything else and and, uh, helping people grasp what's what's available to us information wise out there um, is part of the part of the challenge. I mean, we're looking at 30 to 35 years of missing agronomy and we're trying to, you know, reestablish that back in the people who are hungry for it.
5: There's definitely a hunger. Yeah. We're, we're hungry out here. I know that
3: (laughs) (laughs) that your biology, like livestock.
6: Yeah. And you know, the other thing that uh, was, was talked upon uh, was Steve was talking earlier about the introduction of animals, the ruminant biology that goes out on those fields is diverse and it's, and it's very, very important to get that ruminant biology, you know, through, through the, um, through the cattle back on the ground. (laughs) And the folks who have have started using the biology uh, or watching biology and bringing in the animals, even if it's just in a minimal situation to get them out there and you know get a few plops here and there, uh, it makes a difference. So don't don't ever uh, think that it's just the fact that you know the animals are out here foraging around and they're kicking it up with their hooves and everything. Uh, you know that that feces are passing out is very very rich with a diverse group of of organisms that's very good on cellulose degradation and several other things. So don't discount it.
0: Dan, uh, you your earlier point, uh, you know, was so timely and and so you know spot on. And what I wanted to add to it was, because we're talking about cover crops, but I just had this happen and uh, a very noted uh, agronomist up in Minnesota uh, shared this with me a few weeks ago in that they have seen some terrible bean crops this year because they don't have nodules. And the reason was, was that their corn did not use up all of the Fertilizer, the fertility, the massive amount of fertility that some people put on last year. And that leftover nitrate is actually what has harmed this year's soybean crop, just for what you were saying. That leftover nitrate uh, gave a bad signal to the soybean plants. And so they did not put on the nodules. And so they wound up running out of nitrogen, and the bean crops are going to suffer greatly this year in uh, Minnesota.
6: Yeah, that's very important. And other another thing to think about, George, because um, you know the government provides money for people to do late season stock nitrate tests, and people who've gotten carried away with the nitrogen machine on on corn crops, and we get into this dry weather like we've had this year in many places, and the nitrates that build up in the base of those stalks, if those stalks open up um, or aren't open up fast enough to get that nitrate out, by the time you take leftover fertilizer. Nitrates still in the base of those corn stalks and these bean plants growing in a very, very tough situation where in many cases the herbicides, you know, where we've gone to the, the PPOs and, and the, they're set there stunted for weeks, and then they try to kick into gear and then they get all this nitrate. This is exactly where this whole industrial complex is starting to crush the whole idea of, of good plant and soil health. And people are starting to see these indications of it, but they don't know what they're looking at. And so that's a very good point, George. You cannot let this thing get out of control and change the numbers in the soil system with a plant that can't get up and move away from an area that it doesn't like. It's got to do what it's got to do in the area it's given. And so we've got to be a little more... understanding of what's going on out here and not oversupply anything if we can avoid it is that
4: why reams Reams always said though to keep the same crop not change crops right and is that kind of the reason behind it because we're keeping the same frequencies in the same soil
6: that there's there's part of that is 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 reality yes yeah We know that after a certain number of years, three to six years of a certain crop in a a system, if it stays in the same crop, it goes through a little bit of the doldrums up front. But I think a lot of that we've seen in the doldrums was the system that we've actually been utilizing in the last 50 years. People who've gotten away from that system of just crop rotation and poor soils don't see the doldrums and then after the first three or four or five years the, the 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 yields begin to jump and jump higher yet and i think that's all a part of that system you know and that's that's physics and we don't talk about physics in agriculture we only talk about chemistry and a little biology we forget the physics we don't understand physics so let's not talk about it but that's not real so <laughs> that's all part of it
0: no thank you dan i uh, i i i I do appreciate that. that. That's all. That's that's incredible. No, thanks for sharing. That's good stuff.
2: Dan, what are your thoughts
3: on uh, making a foliar application in the last thirty days on soybeans? What's something we could do to maybe maybe push those to uh, give get a little bit bigger bean?
6: That's a, that's a good question, but you ask it very vaguely, and this is not uncommon, and I'm not saying that to, to beat you down or make you feel embarrassed or anything, but people ask me that a lot, but I have to ask you, what is it you want that bean to do?
3: I want to haul marbles,
6: not BBs. <laughs> okay, so the hard part in all this is what, what by nature beans are what we call an indeterminate crop. An indeterminate crop means it's going to keep doing what? It keeps going. It keeps going. And so the yep. hard part in all this is you've got to try to figure out some way to tell that plant to shut off new production of beans and fill everything that it's already got. Do you know how difficult that is?
3: <laughs> Are you? Oh, anybody have a life here?
6: I mean, that bean wants to keep on living and make more and more beans. And so, you know, one of the reasons why we don't get good test weight on beans isn't because that they aren't making good test weight, it's because the test weight's being diluted by the late season, the stuff that we're putting on and trying to get more volume. And so those late beans tend to be smaller, which can be good, good, good. Uh, In some cases you get, you get more total weight in in a given volume. That's, that's test weight, but we're getting beans that aren't filled quite as well. We're getting volume from the beans and getting weight from them, but we're not going to be, they're not going to be heavy beans. And so it's diluting our test weight. Doesn't mean that we can't have some marbles out there, but you know, physical marbles have something to do with genetics and some genetics needs to be either early season beans uh that are cared for slightly different or or you know putting in full season beans and just shooting for the moon and forgetting about the marbles <laughs> because it's it's a difficult thing to shut a bean down now you can you can hurt them but see hurting beans late in the season that's a no-no
2: mm-hmm.
6: so you know that that's a real challenge now the the only thing is it we go back to what we've been talking about all night long that bean is an energy machine What I have suggested to people is if they've been so excited about Y dropping, then why don't you take cellulose and lignin degrading um, microbes and lay on a Y drop underneath the canopy in a bean field um, to take that soil, lignin and cellulose that's in old corn stalks, old wheat stalks, even old soybean stalks and stuff that's in the organic matter, which is lignin and cellulose that still isn't broken down and spray it underneath that canopy and get that soil to actually start giving up carbon from the cellulose and lignin because once the cellulose and lignin is broken down, that's a very, very complex uh, material. Once it starts to break down and those organisms that possess uh, possess the enzymes to do it, make that change, everybody gets to jump on the carbon. And once everybody jumps on the carbon, the carbon dioxide comes out the higher you get your carbon dioxide and total levels of carbon, the later in the season that you can accomplish that, the bigger those beans will get and the more total yield you'll get out of it. Has very little to do with nutrients at that point, maybe a little potash, but probably more boron. And in some cases, even nitrogen applications to that crop as amino acids or ammonium forms of nitrogen to help you fill those late season beans as fast as you can. That is not something that's easily accomplished, but if you know what you're doing, you can actually have an impact and it needs to be in that last 30 days, which most people by then have said, oh, it's time to give up. Let's let nature do, take its course.
3: Oh, thank you, Dan. So if any of my neighbors around are on the call tonight, if you see me spraying, you know I'm
6: not crazy. <laughs> You know the other thing is when, when the leaves fall off, when the leaves start to fall off, how many of the stems are still green? Huh. Oh, Dan! Oh, are green stems still making? <laughs> are, are green stems still making chlorophyll? Hey, Dan, if it's green, it's good. That's right. It's you know it's, it, we we've looked at the same crop our whole life and never seen something It's fascinating to me. And when I tell people that if a, if the stalk is still green when the leaves have fallen off. It's still making it's still making food. Those those beans that fill from from what's a half an inch of a pod that was three weeks ago to full beans. How does that happen when the leaves fall off? Thank and I've said people have just been fascinated by it. Now, if it's frosted off, that's a different oh, problem. <laughs> yeah,
3: I know. Thank you, Dan. I really really appreciate that. Yeah.
2: All is not as it seems, gentlemen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh,
6: Well, I'm going to have to go. I've got to, I've got to get a couple things done before I head to bed here, guys. But I, I sure appreciate the, the invitation to be on. I've enjoyed listening to this. This is very, very good. Uh, we don't get nearly enough discussions about cover crops. And I appreciate all you've done here.
0: Well, thank you, Dan, and I appreciate you being on and everything that you've uh, contributed tonight and everyone else, you know, everybody on. uh, I know, you know, not everybody uh, wanted, know, to share tonight, but uh, please do let us know if uh, there are things that you would like to, you know, for us to have as a topic uh, for another meeting, but um, we really appreciate the sharing, and uh, that's what this is all about. So... Uh, anybody else got anything? Uh, please uh, chime in, or or we'll uh, we'll wrap this up for tonight. Yeah, thank Thanks you, George. Hey, you're welcome, Josh. Thank you.
3: Yeah, I want to thank everybody for coming on here, uh, joining us tonight, sharing this information. That's what this is all about. It's all about sharing.
0: Thank you for tuning in to today's call presented to you by the Fellowship of Christlike Growers. We hope you can join us again soon.